Anyways, welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. It's another episode of Tour Guide Talk. Uh, good news is that David Sumful will soon be joining us. He will. He should be on the next one. He is he, back from India. He is engaged. He has returned from afar. I Again, the images of, of David walking in front of the Taj Mahal and just kind of shuffling around saying, with that being said, and it's just one of those things. I wonder if he even went to the Taj Mahal. Oh, I'm certain he didn't. <laughs> Why would he? He was in a complete and total other part of India. Yep. But, I don't know. When you think about going to India, that's the thing that comes to my mind. It's like Taj Mahal, maybe going to... Uh, uh, it's like Texas with the Alamo. Yeah, I think I no one has ever compared Texas and India. <laughs> that might be a first. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, uh, David Stumpfel will be joining us soon enough, but for right now, uh, you're stuck with, with Bill and Joseph. My apologies. Uh, at least David will be here to be kind of the straight man for us, so like we can just dilapidate into the insanity, Thanks. and he can continue to be our kind of our, our, our rod of our, wisdom. Yep, our goalpost. But do we move the goalpost too much? Oh, I think we do. We're going to be moving David a lot. Yeah. Well, today, I think... So we talked about last week with, or last time we recorded, we talked about Jacob Cox, and we talked about maybe wanting to do something about the battle. And then we tried an episode about the battle. Turns out, it's just too big. It is. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. So, yeah. what about if we just kind of whittle it down to something super specific? And of course, my idea was like, hmm. Types of ammunition use. No. Uh, no. No. <laughs> that just gets boring. <laughs> so what about the... What if we did something like the myths of the Battle of Franklin, the myths of Spring Hill? I think that could be maybe a bit more manageable. I think so, because with these, these big events, they're bigger than life, and they always have those stories attached to them. Yeah. That are just... They just sound so good. And sometimes... Good stories are just that. They're stories. They're not good history. It's, it's so is it then it's like it's too good to be true? Or what if what if they're just so disgustingly bad? Because that's that's the case with a bunch of myths yeah. around you the You can't see it, but I'm nodding along to Joseph. Um, we need to really have a visual side of this because we make way too many things where it's like okay you can't actually see but I'm swinging a lightsaber at him um, yep. you know so so we need to have something along those lines I guess maybe we have to set up an AV component at, at, now we're at Ripavilla so. we have that it's our YouTube channel yeah I know but like we don't have a camera here oh you're right, you're right. that's that's what I mean like we need the, the visual aspect of it but then then it's not a podcast is it it's a podcast that also has a visual component. You can watch it on YouTube, and you can listen to it on wherever you get your podcast, which is a perfect time to promote our YouTube channel, Battle of Franklin Trust. On YouTube, you can go on there and find us, and there's a series of videos that we've done uh, ranging in all kinds of topics. In fact, there is an episode on Jefferson Davis and John C. Calhoun on there, which I know is just Bill's very favorite episode of anything that's on there. Uh, there is also a great episode on the 44th Missouri at the Battle of Franklin, which are a brand new regiment, and that is our CEO, Eric Jacobson, with one of our staff members, uh, Adam Adam Thomas, yeah. who's a former Marine, so there's real good stories in there that are factual, 
And there's, there's also videos, in fact, addressing some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Uh, John Bell Hood and Laudanum, the breakfast meeting at Ripa Villa, all of these things that have been sort of the standard fare for stories about the Tennessee campaign. We'll address those and more here in just a second. But since you're listening to the podcast, when you get done, go on YouTube, subscribe to the Battle Franklin Trust YouTube page. You won't regret it. Great stuff coming out on there. And, and a big shout out to Braxy. Uh, and to everybody that's a part of the YouTube channel. Uh, let's let's jump into this then. So where do we start? Because is, is it just, oh, well, John Bellhood wasn't on Laudanum when he was at Franklin? Or do I think we, we start with uh, the most simplest. There was, in fact, a battle at Spring Hill. Uh, the guys that fought here certainly thought that there were. Yep. Uh, so what do you... When you usually hear it, what is it usually just people that are surprised? Oh, there was a battle here. Or yeah. is it is it just they say things like, Oh, I know something happened, yeah. but I don't know what. Or you get asked, is it more is it more of a scrimmage than a battle? No, it was a battle. William A. Kesey in the sixty fourth Ohio saw a man with a hole shot through his shoulder. He said he was big enough to put his fist through, so I, I think it was a battle. Yeah. I think that qualifies as battle. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I mean we, we won't go into a blow by blow of the battle here, but I there's this great um Adam Badeau, in his biography of Ulysses S. Grant, he says that Cincinnati, St. Louis, and Nashville were all defended at Spring Hill. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it, it, maybe it kind of overemphasizes it. You know, we're just trying to get it on the map as a battle. Uh, he was trying to make it into the stand of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, you know, what happens for John Schofield's army, what happens in this campaign... It, is directly impacted by the events here at Spring Hill. You don't get Franklin without Spring Hill. And everything in Franklin was intended for Spring Hill. Yeah, and everything that Hood... I mean, Hood staked his entire career on this move. It was It's this bold, daring thing to try and swing his army behind John Schofield in Columbia. And he's not incapable of this. He's fully capable of pulling this off. Which goes, which goes to this other myth, the breakfast I mean, meeting. Yeah, the breakfast meeting. There is... <sighs> Hood and Forest, they're at Ripa Villa. They're having this big breakfast. There's biscuits and gravies. I've, I've, I, you said biscuits and gravy. I heard, I heard that it was fried chicken and and pancakes. Oh, okay. See, we've both heard completely different stories. I, the full menu. I mean, good, what if they had both? Yeah. <laughs> The Man, full what, menu. Hey, what a breakfast. I mean, the fat kid in me is super excited. That's why about that. that's why Hood made the bad decision. He was he was in comatose from all it was, the food. It was all the cholesterol just <laughs> rushed to his head. Uh, <laughs> I never told I, you I hate this. <laughs> there was there was one time I was on tour here at Ripa Villa, and a guest asked me, they said, uh, can you tell the story about uh, Susan Chair's Digging a hole to put her china in so Forrest doesn't take it. And I just, just, like, what? Where'd you learn that? I've never, those are the... But they're the little, that's the little stuff. And what's it, the white lie leads to a bigger lie, which leads to a bigger lie, which leads to the biggest lie. Uh, So you start with the little things. But the big one, the big mamma jamma down here in Spring Hill is the breakfast meeting at Ripa Villa. And I'm not going to you know, keep promoting the YouTube channel, but there is a video that's all about the breakfast meeting at Ripa Villa. And, and who, is, who is in that video, Joseph? That was not necessary to call me out that way. 
I'm here to keep you humble. It's just a really good video. It is. I won't lie. I mean, it is. That, that was the point. I wasn't doing it because I'm like, oh, you have to watch it because I'm in it. No, it was, uh, you have to watch it because it's a good video. But if you would like to put a face to the voice. That's it. Yeah, there you that's go. the one. Uh, but it it helps to dispel a lot of the old things. What you heard about was, was Susan McKissick made breakfast for all of the generals. Well, this comes from an oral account that Susan gives where she essentially says that there were officers that met at or near the house. Well, that certainly says nothing about eating breakfast at Ripavilla. It says nothing about her making breakfast here. And as far as the attendants, how could Forrest or Claiborne or A.P. Stewart or any of them been here? Because Forrest was already well north of town. A.P. Stewart was beginning his movement. So the only person that Hood needs to see is the one person responsible for not doing his job the night before and blocking the road, and that's Benjamin Cheatham. We know that they meet because Hood tells Cheatham at the end of their meeting, get moving, get on up to Franklin, or pursue Schofield. So where the myth comes to together, I think it, maybe it was at one point to build up drama, but I don't know what's more dramatic than what unfolds here and what leads to what happens in Franklin. And of course, when Franklin... When, when Hood arrives in Franklin, of course, he's faced with no choices, which goes to that myth. Is that John Bell Hood isn't intelligent, that he isn't capable, uh, or that there was somebody else that could have commanded the army. And I think this is the reason that I typically sign off of social media the last like week and a half of November. Uh, because I know people are going to be posting things about... You know, in the Civil War circle, so the mm-hmm. ultra nerds mm-hmm. will be posting things about the Tennessee campaign. Will be posting things about John Bell Hood, and inevitably in the comment section, there's somebody that will say Hood didn't know what he was doing, and he butchered his whole army. He that would have been better. Yeah, Nathan Bedford Forrest is the should have been commander of the Army of Tennessee. And to Forrest that, said, "I'd whip you if you weren't already half a man." Except he didn't say that because that goes to another myth. Your our segues are brilliant here, but uh, we have to finish this one first. Uh, but to put the myth to bed, John Bell Hood was as capable of a soldier in 1864 as he was in 1862. The problem is, is that the war is vastly different in 1864 than it was in 1862. Earthen entrenchments have become really not even an exception. They've become the rule. But then that, that goes to the big, the big question of, uh, you know, Hood had other options when he got to Franklin. He didn't. No. There was no other option. What do you, and this is the uh, maybe the, the hard pill to swallow. Because I, I think as a society, as historians, I think just as people, we want there to be like this alternate reality where everything worked out the way we think it should have in mm-hmm. history. And, it, and let's be fair, if that were such the case, there probably would not have been a war because we're so idealist that we would have never had to fight, right? Uh, but we want this beautiful alternate universe where Hood never has to attack at Franklin. Uh, or if he does, you know, he gets this opportunity to flank around uh, again or listen to Nathan Bedford Forrest or listen to Benjamin Cheatham. And the reality is, is that he has no option when he gets to Franklin. He says he has to catch Schofield between Spring Hill and the Brentwood Hills, just north of Franklin. After that, Schofield's home free. He gets to Nashville. And he's got Thomas there waiting for him. 
I don't ever want to hear that I'm a fanboy <laughs> for any general ever again. <clears throat> but it doesn't make it doesn't make us wrong. Certainly, it doesn't make serious studies of the campaign wrong to say that Hood was well first, well within his rights to order a frontal assault at Franklin. But then the second part of it is that what else was he supposed to do? He's also an offensive player. Yeah. But he's a student of Lee and Jackson. Yeah. This is his kind of battle. This is what this is what he does. And and if you think about it too, when he shows up at Franklin, Schofield's trapped, got his back to the Harp of the River. He's got 3,500 men in an advanced line exposed out front. Hood's looking at all of this. I don't know if he was salivating, but God, you know, you got to think about a guy like him who's fought in all of the battles that he's been in, who, as you said, studied under Lee and Jackson how to lead and how to fight. You got to think he's looking there going, yeah, it's go time. There's no other option. The chips are down, and at that point, it's just made the better man win. You've got 20,000 men. He's got 20,000 men. The only advantage is earthworks and artillery. Yeah. Which, here's another great myth. The earthworks at Franklin were impregnable. Several years ago, Battle Franklin Trust, when they acquired the land just south of Carter House, had to conduct an archaeological survey. And essentially, the, the whole premise of it was to try and find the earthworks. And they found a soil disturbance of about 18 to 20 inches which says that the earthworks were maybe three and four feet high at their highest mm-hmm. along the entire line. I, I don't know about you, but if you're John Bell Hood, I think you have to at least give that a shot. Yep. And it's not, uh, it's not like they were impregnable. It's not like they were impossible to get through. And they break through it at multiple different spots. Throughout the center, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, just through the center. But they're, they're crumbling it on the center. Yeah. And they break through and even move the first Kentucky guns. Yeah, so I, I I think that myth is is fairly well trodden, but it's also one that should be put to bed. Um, I think there's another myth that we can talk about, and that's Nathan Bedford Forrest here. In the in the, in the campaign, yeah, in the campaign where well, I, it's I it's think certainly so, yeah, that he's this ferocious fighter, but he's not the same guy he is in '62 and '63. By 64, he's exhausted. He's been bounced around like a ping-pong ball, east-west, back and forth. Mm -hmm. He engages with Lane's brigade, and he underestimated how many U.S. guys were in town, so he pulls out and then doesn't tell anyone else. Yeah. Doesn't relay that information. Let's also say, he attacked Lane's brigade three separate times Mm -hmm. and was pushed back three Three times. times. And then he retreats south. As you said, doesn't bother to tell anybody what's going on. So then the Confederate Army shows up. You're supposed to have the cavalry be your eyes and ears, and they just totally drop the ball. Then you end up in 45 minutes of fighting between Claiborne's division and Wagner's division in Spring Hill. And, and Claiborne's and just decimated here. Takes a series of casualties here. Uh, well, he's actually decimated in Franklin. In Franklin, so 53%. Right. But, and him. But he also he doesn't get to write a report about what he saw here in Spring Hill. And so with that piece of evidence what he would have seen you know who's to say that in his report he doesn't say something like well had i known that luther bradley's brigade was on the top of the hill but he didn't didn't have the opportunity and we'll never know naturally Uh, how many casualties i mean in 45 minutes of fighting there's roughly 750 casualties and you could say it's almost even shit that's rough 
Because then those but, guys just take it in the teeth the next day in Franklin. And, and Bradley's brigade is beat up here, too. Yeah. Bradley's wounded. He's replaced by Joseph Conrad later that evening. And by the next afternoon, Lane and Conrad's brigades will play an integral part in how the Battle of Franklin begins and how it unfolds. Um, which I, I think brings us around to another myth. And this one's a, less about the Confederates and less about Forrest and less... It, it's about the hero of the Battle of Franklin. Who are we going? Emerson Updike. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just like there's yeah, hero he worship. He rushes in for... and pushes everyone back and saves the day. All by himself. All by himself. And you can practically see it. On his horse. I think before uh, we even get to him saving the day, we got to tackle the bigger one that he and Wagner got in a fight that morning. Yeah, there's very little evidence to su- to support that. Uh, so, one of the myths that comes out of of the battle is that you know Hood's army he shows up, he's laced out on laudanum and just decides to make this decision to attack. But you know you've got the drug addict on one side, but on the federal side you've got the drunkard, uh, General George Wagner, commander of the Second Division of the Fourth Corps, uh, is described by historians, is described by you know, local battlefield guides uh, from 30-off years ago saying that Wagner was drunk and that he was full of whiskey and in vainglorious condition. And that's a quote from David Stanley's letter that he wrote in 1883 to a man named Marshall Thatcher. But David Stanley never saw George Wagner that day. Stanley was sick throughout yeah, much of the morning. poor health. He's been up for hours on end, I mean, just I, exhausted. I'd say probably close to three days with no sleep or limited sleep. Uh, and Dude, I know, I, go, I know you like a day without sleep. You are a yeah. I don't get right. To be I don't go home. to bed at ten. If I go to bed at like midnight, I'm just foul the next day. He's foul right now. I am not. You don't know the recording pleasant. conditions that I am left to I deal am, with. I am pleasant. I'm a little cold right now, though. Yeah, thermostat's not exactly yeah. working. And I, uh, <laughs> the, I. Didn't make coffee quick enough, so here we are, here freezing we are. to death. Freezing to death. I think I can see my breath. Oh, the things we do for, for the you. podcast. Ugh. For you, the listeners. So he's not drunk. Okay, there's that. Yep. Right. So then the other thing that you would have heard is that George Wagner and Emerson Optite get into the shouting match, and they're screaming back and forth, and they're calling each other names. So Wagner's not drunk. Wagner doesn't get into a fight with Emerson Optite, and nope. the account that we have of that is a soldier in the 64th Ohio in Company B, which is far, far out on the regiment's line. He, first off, he couldn't have heard their discussion, and he very likely couldn't have even seen their discussion. But and I bet you you have. I bet you that is just a game of telephone. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, oh, yeah, they were having this conversation, and then as it travels down the line, it becomes this bigger-than-life story. A conversation, you say, huh? Oh, well, actually... Wagner was angry. I, I heard he was cussing up a storm. I heard Emerson Opdyke started shouting back at him. I heard they were drunk. And there it is. Myths, lies, and nonsense born in 30 seconds or less. Uh, So we know that that is, let's call it nonsense. So then why is Wagner put out, he puts his men out there. It's a great position for them to be in. Tactically, he extends the line of sight for Jacob Cox from his headquarters 500 yards south. Gives him an extra mile of visibility. Optic's men are exhausted. They had done the lion's share of the work the night before and bringing up the rear guard of the army. Uh, so naturally, his men are tired. They're hungry. 
places them in reserve just to the north of the Carter House. Uh, Charles Clark and his history of the 125th Ohio said that they uh, started busting out bacon and started cooking their coffee and eating rations. Opdyke wrote in a letter to his wife, you know, he had been in town in April of 63. He wrote in a letter to his wife, Lucy, a couple days later, uh, you know, before the battle, I went into town to say howdy to some old friends. Uh, so there is also the other myth is that everybody was Schofield's army. They were ready. They were ready and waiting to pounce. They're not. They're just buying time. They're waiting yeah. for the bridge to be rebuilt. They're just doing this because what else are you going to have 20,000 soldiers doing in a city with a population less than 1,000? It's a, uh, I think it's either Cox or Schofield says that veteran soldiers with uh, entrenching tools in their hands will always find a way to use them. Yeah. You know, so naturally, they dig in. But is anybody expecting a fight? No. no. And they then one don't comes. think it's going to happen. And then it comes. So It's like... It's like the Death Star. They thought it was impenetrable. They were like, oh, nothing's going to happen. We're perfectly safe. I'm going to be honest. I I hate this. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, George Wagner, Emerson Opdyke, they get in a fight. No. Uh, Wagner's men are... the. The myth is that they were stuck out there and they were ordered to hold their ground. Uh, I actually watched the old documentary that used to be shown at the Carter House and it said... Is it the History Channel special? No, no, no. This is the one that used to show in the theater. Oh, okay. Uh, And it said uh, Wagner's men were uh, told to remain and hold their ground against the perilous assault that everyone saw forming. Okay, well, there's another myth. Nobody could really see the Confederates. They were tucked behind Privet Knob uh, in, in the low ground as you're coming up towards Franklin. So then what you get is the, the story that Emerson Opdyke comes roaring up from the backside of the hill in front of his brigade, leading his men. Well, brigade commanders typically aren't in front of their brigades. They're usually behind them. And he, The picture is that he's got a pistol over his head. He's about to club a Confederate soldier. Except the truth is that he tells... Tells his wife that he broke his pistol and then he had picked up a rifle and that he was ushering his own men along. And then the story by 1882 is that he was clubbing men over their heads with their with his pistol and he was leading the way into the assault. So which one is it, Emerson? Which one is it? Where's the lie? What's true? What happened? I tend to go with he was in the back, pushing his men up the hill mm-hmm. with a rifle. And maybe, you know, he gets involved in some of the action when he gets closer to the house. What is certain is that no matter all of the myths, all of the lies, all of the nonsense that comes along with this story, unfortunately, because sometimes the great facts get almost ripped apart by the lies, there's no other way to describe what happened at Franklin than how Emerson Opdyke said it. Mm-hmm. He had never seen bodies packed so densely under a powder dim starlight. I mean, the field is littered with dead and wounded men after five hours of fighting is over. And how did they get there? How was the fight? I mean, did it go on for five hours? Was there just hand-to-hand combat for five hours straight? I don't think so. No. No. I think that's where you have that 15, 20-minute Confederate breakthrough, and then they get pushed back, and then it turns into a low, thundering roar. So you might have... So the, the, the title for the Battle of Franklin for so many years was Five of the Bloodiest Hours of the Civil War. Well, maybe the first hour and a half, or the first two hours. Which I've always 
had a problem with that. Because I think it takes away from every other battle. And the other thing, too, is how do you quantify that? Exactly. Like Somebody says, like, this is the bloody... Standing at the Antietam battlefield. This is the bloodiest 20 minutes in the Civil War. How do you come up with that? Mm-hmm. Where do you get those numbers? And how do you do the math to figure that out? And also, why is that important? It's not. In the grand scheme of things, each of these battles are... Horrible. Terrible. Egregious. Terrible things. Yeah. They're all bad. So why spend time trying to quantify that yours is the worst? We could just say that war is hell. Sherman says it. I mean, heck, he's right there above your picture, above your shoulder right there. War is hell and you can't refine it. Who is... Who's the Confederate that says this was the worst artillery he, he ever saw? Edward Carey Walthall. Yeah, Walthall. Who was Who everywhere. everywhere. Says that this was the worst artillery he experienced during the war. Yeah. And this is a guy that was at Chickamauga, where the sky was literally filled with iron. Yeah. And yet, this is the most devastating fire I had ever seen. That took a dark turn there. It did. We got serious. But it, it's... And, and that's the thing. Is that, you know... It's a serious topic. Tour guide talk can be fun, and we do have our fair share of fun. But at the same time, there are the discussions that we have here that we have no choice but to have some weight to them. It can't be levity all the time, but it's like giving a tour. You know, you've got a group of people and you're feeding really well with one another, and so, you know, you can you can bring some levity in here and there. You've got some people that don't really know why they're there, so what you've got to do is you've got to prove it to them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to make them face some really hard and, and terrible stuff to do that. Yeah. Which unfortunately sometimes has to come through on the podcast too. And I, I think it's to everyone's benefit to understand that. It is because if you're listening to this, you want to know the truth. You don't want to know the myths or the fun stories. You want the honest truth. And, and that's not to say that there aren't incredible and compelling and amazing stories that take place on the battlefield because there are. There are. There, for what the forty thousand men who are here, there's forty thousand stories. I I love the story of Michael Devine in Spring Hill, who is uh, mortally wounded on the battlefield, and he's crying out and screaming in pain. Finally, some U.S. boys come to his rescue as they're pulling him off the battlefield. Some Confederates fire at him just to let him know that they were there, that they knew that they were there, but they let him get their friend because they were also listening to him yell and scream. And it's that it's a depressing story but it shows just a little humanity on the battlefield yeah whatever's left of humanity by 64 yeah so any other myths we should bust I think think we are done busting I thought you were going to go with something much worse I thought you were going to say like we're the myth busters (laughs) I think we're done being the myth busters oh we do have a correction we need to make about our Jacob Cox episode. Ah, yes. We uh, unfortunately said a couple things that were not entirely correct. Gene Schmiel, the author of Citizen General, was kind enough to write to us to let us know he loved the episode. But Sometimes. we mistook some information. So he was not the president of Oberlin University. Uh, instead, he was at the University of Cincinnati mm-hmm. and then ended up donating his 2000 book collection to Oberlin and then was doing a lot of writing there in retirement. And the other thing we incorrectly said was his father was in fact not a fur trapper, but instead he was a master 
was a uh, master carpenter. He was a builder. Yeah, he, he was, was a, builder. a builder that was building a cathedral in Canada. Canada. So uh, we busted our own myths. Yeah, we right busted there. our own myths. And there we go. And sometimes maybe the lesson to take away from all of this is that if you get caught in a lie, you get caught in a myth. Humble yourself and be honest about yep. it. And that, I think, is one of the things about the entrenched myths that refuse to die is because we want to cling to it because it's comfortable or because somebody's said it for 35 years and they can't imagine having to say something else. Maybe that's the lesson. Which is also why oral history is so challenging. Well, we can do a whole episode on that, but we can't because this, this is another rabbit hole that You're we're right. rushing down. You're right. And we're at 45 minutes, and I just don't know what I'm going to do with all of this. <laughs> uh, but thank you, folks, for listening. And we'll see you on the battlefields. Thank you, thank you.